Hi, I'm Connie Loises. And this is Alex Gove. And this is Strictly VC Download. Happy Friday, everyone. I was at a friend's house for lunch earlier with a bunch of very, very joyous Argentinians after Lionel Messi and company survived one of the wildest games of the World Cup in a penalty shootout that I hope some of you caught. It was really amazing and exciting to watch. But now, of course, it is getting late. So we are going to head straight into a couple of quick news hits including a segment about OpenAI, the AI company headed by Sam Altman, and why an economist and VC who I've known for years, Paul Kudrowski, is very upset with the company. For what it's worth, I'm excited to be sitting down with Altman next month in San Francisco to talk about the company at our first Strictly VC event of the year. We last sat down together three years ago, and candidly, the interview has not aged well. Much of what Altman had to say at the time was just unimaginable to me, and I don't think I took him entirely seriously. And now, of course, much of what he said was around the corner is, in fact, seeping into our society very much in real time. So we're going to be talking about the implications of the tech that his company has released to the general public and where we go from here. But like I said, first, some other news. FTX founder Sam Bankman-Fried has been talking the ears off of journalists, but up until now, he has avoided speaking to congressional investigators. That has changed. Today, Bankman-Fried tweeted that he would appear before the House Committee on Financial Services this coming Tuesday. SBF will presumably be under oath, so it's probably a good thing that he's hired a high-profile lawyer to represent him. This same advocate recently represented G. Lane Maxwell, Jeffrey Epstein's partner in pedophilia. Still, Bankman-Fried will have a lot of splainin' to do. The former crypto wunderkind will inevitably be asked whether he transferred customer deposits to Alameda Research, a hedge fund that he controlled. FTX's new CEO, John J. Ray III, a man who has been hired to clean up the mess at FTX, has stated that SBF used, quote, special software to conceal the misuse of customer funds. Bankman-Fried has denied this allegation. It would also not be unreasonable to think that SBF will face questioning about the $1 billion that he borrowed from Alameda, as well as the $2.3 billion that an Alameda affiliate loaned Paper Bird, another company that he controlled. And he will surely face questioning about the money he put to work with both the Democratic and Republican parties, as well as news organizations such as the crypto news publication The Block, which according to a report in today's Axios, received some $43 million in loans from Alameda. Was this all part of a cynical and manipulative game that the former billionaire was playing as he intimated to a Vox reporter in a series of late-night DMs? For what it's worth, if the House committee is open to suggestions, I would like to know more about the signal conversations that SBF had with Binance CEO Changpeng Cizi Zhao in the days leading up to FTX's bankruptcy and what they reveal about the state of the cryptocurrency market. In a fascinating article in today's Times, reporters David Yaff Bellany and Emily Flitter write about one such conversation in which CZ accuses Bankman Freed of trying to tank Tether, a USD stablecoin, with a $250,000 trade. SBF retorts that there is no way such a small trade could ever undermine Tether, 
But the fact that Zhao was so concerned about Tether's stability does not speak well for stablecoins or the crypto industry in general. So we will be watching on Tuesday and looking to see in particular if committee members will be able to poke any holes in SBF's defense, namely that he was a terrible CEO and lost sight of FTX's risk exposure. One thing is certain, though, whatever SBF's lawyers getting paid, it's not enough. Yesterday, the Federal Trade Commission announced that it would seek to block Microsoft's $69 billion acquisition of Activision, the video game behemoth behind Call of Duty, a franchise that has generated almost $30 billion in revenue from game sales and microtransactions since 2003. It's a curious development for two very different reasons. First, According to a story in today's Wall Street Journal, Microsoft has been engaged in a charm offensive with every regulator that will sit down with it, an effort led by its vice chairman and president, Brad Smith, who joined the company back in 1993. To allay regulators' concerns, Microsoft has made many promises, the most important of which is that Call of Duty will be available on other platforms, such as Sony PlayStation. Perhaps a more important reason that the FTC's move came as a surprise is that courts have been skeptical of challenges to so-called vertical mergers, or mergers in which two businesses don't compete directly. Although the landmark Paramount case famously barred vertical integration in the movie business, in which studios tried to control the production, distribution, and exhibition of feature films, the justice system has looked the other way when it comes to other vertical mergers. One famous, albeit dated, example is the AT&T-Time Warner merger, which was ultimately allowed. Given how many concessions Microsoft has made to help this deal go through, Daniel Francis, an assistant professor of law at New York University and a former FTC official, thinks the FTC may have overplayed its hand. Courts have been surprisingly solicitous about the kinds of things that Microsoft has offered here, he told the New York Times. The Times also notes that the FTC's leader, Lena Kahn, has been very aggressive in pursuing novel or little-used arguments to challenge deals. Still, any parent of a 13-year-old Strictly VC intern who plays NBA 2K can tell you that Xbox and PlayStation don't always play well together, especially when it comes to fast-twitch games like Call of Duty. No matter how much Microsoft protests, that Call of Duty will not tilt the scales in its favor, we can definitely see why regulators and Sony are so concerned. Up next, Connie's interview with economist, VC, and MIT fellow Paul Kudrowski about open AI. But first, a word from our sponsor. Are you a military veteran looking to get your startup business up and running with the support of the best of the best advisors and investors? The Military Veteran Startup Conference brings together hundreds of founders, operators, and venture capitalists for two days on February 2nd and 3rd in San Francisco. The event will have panels on military veteran-led unicorn companies, women veteran founders, and dual-use founders. There's also a panel on dual-use venture capitalists with speakers from InQtel, Lux Capital, and Founders Fund. You can learn more and register today at milvetstartups.com. That's M-I-L-V-E-T startups.com. 
and use the code STRICTLYVC15 for 15% off your tickets. Military veterans make fantastic founders and investors. Come build your network at the densest gathering of military veteran talent in the early stage ecosystem. The event is open to everyone, veterans, veteran spouses, and civilians. Once again, visit milvetstartups.com, that's M-I-L-V-E-T startups.com, to learn more and register today using the code STRICTLYVC15 for 15% off your tickets. More than three years ago, I sat down with Sam Altman for a small event in San Francisco soon after he left his role as the president of Y Combinator to become the CEO of the AI company he co-founded in 2015 with Elon Musk and others called OpenAI. At the time, Altman described OpenAI's potential in language that sounded outlandish to some. Here is part of our conversation about OpenAI's revenue model or lack thereof at the time. So I'm just wondering, like, eventually, is the idea to kind of, like, license technologies? Will you have customers that you're going to be customizing algorithms for them? Or how, how is it going to work? You know, the honest answer is we have no idea. Um, we, we have never made any revenue. We have no current plans to make revenue. We have no idea how we may one day generate revenue. We have made a soft promise to investors that once we've built this sort of generally intelligent system, basically, we will ask it to figure out a way to generate an investment return for you. (laughs) It sounds like an episode of Silicon Valley. (laughs) It really really does. I get it. You can laugh. It's all right. But it is what I actually believe is going to happen. And so it went. Altman said, for example, that the opportunity with artificial general intelligence, which is machine intelligence that can solve problems as well as a human, is so great that if OpenAI managed to crack it, the outfit could, quote, maybe capture the light cone of all future value in the universe. He said the company was, quote, going to have to not release research because it was so powerful. Asked if OpenAI was guilty of fear-mongering, Altman talked about the dangers of not thinking through, quote, societal consequences when, quote, you're building something on an exponential curve. The audience continued to laugh at various points of the conversation, not certain how seriously to take Altman. No one is laughing now, however. While machines are not yet as intelligent as people, the tech that OpenAI has since released is taking many aback, including Musk, with some critics fearful that it could be our undoing, especially with more sophisticated tech reportedly coming soon. Indeed, though heavy users insist it's not so smart, the chat GPT model that OpenAI made available to the general public last week is so capable of answering questions like a person that professionals across a range of industries are trying to process the implications. Educators, for example, wonder how they'll be able to distinguish original writing from the algorithmically generated essays they are bound to receive and that can evade anti-plagiarism software. Paul Kodrowski isn't an educator per se. He's an economist, venture capitalist, and MIT fellow who calls himself a, quote, frustrated normal with a penchant for thinking about risks and unintended consequences in complex systems. 
But Kadrowski is among those who are suddenly worried about our collective future, tweeting yesterday, shame on OpenAI for launching this pocket nuclear bomb without restrictions into an unprepared society. Kadrowski continued, I obviously feel chat GPT and its ilk should be withdrawn immediately and if ever reintroduced only with tight restrictions. We talked with Kodrowski yesterday about some of his concerns and why he thinks OpenAI is driving what he believes is the, quote, most disruptive change the U.S. economy has seen in 100 years. Here's Kodrowski in his own words. I had looked at it early on, and I've played with these chat UIs, conversational user interfaces, whatever you want to call them, into services like this in the past. And obviously, this is a huge leap beyond and what troubled me here in particular, though, was for want of better words, I'll say is the casual brutality of it, that this has, as you implied, massive consequences for a host of different activities, not mm-hmm. just the obvious ones like, I don't know, high school essay writing, right? but across pretty much any domain where there's a grammar, an organized way of expressing yourself. So that could be software engineering, that can be high school essays, that can be legal documents, where all of them are easily eaten by this sort of voracious beast and spit back out again without compensation to whatever was used for training it. So there's an input side of this, much like the problem we have in generative art, where the art was trained on all of these images that were deemed to be in the public domain, and now all kinds of artists are being put out of business because generative artificial intelligence products are generating spectacularly impressive products that we're all trained on other people's work. Kodrowski went on to say that people keep wanting to compare OpenAI's generative tech to disruptive tech we've seen before, but that there is no comparison. To make an analogy here, some might say, well, did you feel the same way when automation arrived in auto plants and auto workers were put out of work? Because it's a broader phenomenon, but you could make that analogy. And this is, of course, very different because the difference with respect to these specific learning technologies is they're self-catalyzing. They're learning from the requests. So robots in a manufacturing plant, while disruptive and have incredible economic consequences for the people working there, didn't then turn around and start absorbing everything going inside Mm -hmm, inside mm -hmm. the factory and then moving across sector by sector. Whereas that's exactly not only what we can expect, but what we should expect. I asked Kodrowski how we rein in the type of tech that OpenAI is at the forefront of rolling out. While Altman and Musk have themselves talked at length about the need for safe artificial intelligence and guardrails, currently there are essentially none. He said he could imagine a few things happening on this front. So you're going to see things like, for example, in the same way that the FTC demanded that people running blogs years ago and had affiliate links, they had to say, we have affiliate links. I make Mm -hmm. money from this stuff. Mm -hmm. I think people are going to be forced to make disclosures that we wrote none of this. This is all machine generated. So you're going to see at a trivial level, you're going to see that kind of thing go on. I think you're also going to see new energy for the ongoing lawsuit against Microsoft and OpenAI over copyright infringement in the context of our in-training machine learning algorithms. Mm-hmm. And there's, there's going to be a broader DMCA issue here with respect to the service. And I think there's the potential for a, like a 10x Napster-sized lawsuit and settlement eventually with respect to the consequences of these services, which will probably take too long and not help enough people. But, you know, I don't see how we don't end up in a similar place with respect to these technologies. Because Kodrowski is a fellow at MIT, before I let him go, I asked him what some of the other academics at the school think of OpenAI and its chat GPT. 
Andy McAfee and mm-hmm. uh, his group over there. They're more sanguine. There's a more orthodox view out there that anytime we see disruption, other opportunities get created. People are mobile. They move from place to place and from to occupation to occupation. And we shouldn't be so hidebound that we think that this particular evolution of technology is the one around which we can't mutate and migrate. And I think that's broadly true. Mm-hmm. But the lesson of the last five years in particular has been these changes can take a long time. Free trade, for example, is one of those incredibly disruptive economy-wide experiences. And we all told ourselves as economists looking at this, that the economy will adapt and people in general will benefit from lower prices. But what no one anticipated was that someone would organize all the angry people and elect Donald Trump. Right. So there's this idea that we can anticipate and predict how long it will take and what the consequences will be in the middle and what gets burned down in the process is, again, it's hubristic. It's wrong. We don't know. Thanks for listening, everybody. And special thanks to the Military Veteran Startup Conference hosted by Context Ventures on February 2nd and 3rd. Remember to check out millvetstartups.com. Have a great weekend, and we'll see you here next week.